Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. It is Thursday, September 23rd. We are heading into the weekend of the Russian Grand Prix. Summer is officially over, which means the new iPhone launches soon, probably (laughs) tomorrow. We've got maybe five, six, seven, eight Grand Prix left. Nobody really knows this pandemic, this COVID world is crazy, but we do have a tight championship. But before we get there, I literally had a letter asking me my opinion on Drake's latest album, Certified Lover Boy. I joke, it wasn't a letter. It was two DMs from Joe Santucci and another from Micah. I like it. It's grown on me. Very rarely do I like an album out of the box, but this one continues to grow on me. I, I really like the the Way Too Sexy jam. I love Knife Talk. I love 7 a.m. on Bridal Path. There's a couple of other good jams. It's it's growing on me. I haven't immersed myself in Donda. I feel like I lost that connection I once had with Kanye about 10 years ago. I've heard some good stuff, but I think this album is going to keep me busy through at least next summer. My friend, how are you? Oh man, same, you know, I feel the same way about Certified Lover Boy. I haven't been this excited since Duran Duran dropped Rio way back in <laughs> 1982, but there you go. Hey, that is so depressing that you had to remind me that summer is now officially over. I was just getting to enjoy summer and just like that, it's up and gone, but hey, you know what? It's it's still kind of nice weather around here, so we, we, we won't start complaining about our Pacific Northwest rain, at least for, well, maybe another <laughs> week, because once the floodgates open, it'll just kind of be like that forever, and uh, we'll be miserable, but we'll make do, at least when it comes to the Formula One World Championship. We are not miserable. We're still enjoying that uh, quite a bit. As you said, uh, we get back to racing just in several hours' time. I think that um, FP1 starts at about one. 30 a.m. Pacific time, 4.30 a.m. Eastern time. So if you're either a night owl or an early riser, if you're on the East Coast, you might actually be able to, to go and check that out before you go to sleep or before you go to work. But uh, exciting, but you know, not the greatest, most exciting track on the championship. I mean, it, you know, it's kind of fun. We were talking about in the Spaces chat a little bit earlier. I mean, watching it is not the greatest spectacle, but from a gaming point of view, it's actually kind of a fun track to drive around and um, you know for a a track that has a vertical profile resembling something like a pool table anyways I get ahead of myself uh, a little bit Uh, before we get into it just wanted to give out uh, some shout outs uh, to Thomas Beto, Kirk Brew and Taryn McLaren who very kindly left us uh, some nice reviews on Apple Podcasts uh, this week appreciate it guys and we had a couple of emails if we get a chance to do that we'll dive into that uh, towards the end of the show But as you said so nicely, Mr. Hamilton, we get back to racing after a week off. And I must admit that uh, I'm not used to weeks off when the sort of compressed, condensed calendars that we've experienced over the past year and a half, ever since, you know, the 2020 season was kind of cobbled together because of the pandemic. And having a weekend off is actually kind of a strange phenomena, but I find myself kind of getting back into the news. And there's been quite a bit over the past couple of days. 
I, I completely agree. And I think it's probably valuable, even if it's just for my benefit, to maybe quickly <laughs> cast our eyes over to the current championship standings. Because Please. I think as we set up the Russian Grand Prix, it's probably good to just remind everyone of how things are shaping up. So we know the championship is close. And if we cast our eyes towards the current World Drivers Championship, we have Max Verstappen leading with 226. Ugh. Point five points. <laughs> that that's going to be a black mark on this championship for eternity. Lewis Hamilton is close behind with two hundred twenty one point five points. Valtteri Bottas is in third with one forty one. Lando Norris with one thirty two. Sergio Perez with one eighteen. Disappointingly, this year just two podiums through fourteen. 14 Grand Prix, Charles Leclerc follows up with 104, and then Carlos signs at 97.5. And quickly, just to run down the top three in the Constructors' Championship, Mercedes leads, so we have a split championship so far. We don't see that often. They lead at 362.5 points, followed up by Red Bull, Honda at 344.5. And then a distant third is McLaren and Mercedes, although they are surging with 215, followed by Ferrari at 201.5. Five. So maybe that helps set up the news, set up the weekend, but probably good just to reflect back on how tight this championship is, especially as we go into the first couple of stories you've got teed up for today. Yeah, you know, I, I just wanted to comment on these half points, and it's been bugging me ever since the, the, uh, the Belgian Grand Prix for two reasons. Number one, it will be a reminder of how much of a farce that, quote unquote, and I'm doing the uh, inverted comments here, that race was. And also, as uh, you know, for obsessive compulsive people like myself, this is going to bug me forever when I look back at Lewis's career stats and Max's career stats that unless, you know, you know what they should do? They should have like a non-championship race before the start of next season, like a winter testing, give everybody half points that was in Belgium <laughs> that scored points just so we can round it off and, and people like me can can go back and sleep soundly at night without, uh, you know, seething and uh, going a little bit uh, it, kind of it mental about it. It bugs me as much as a tie <laughs> in the NFL. When you see that lone solitary tie mm-hmm. in, in the standings, yeah, it drives me crazy. I, I I wish there was a way we could just round them up at the end of the season, but who knows? We still have seven races left and maybe Maybe. one of them could be wet. Maybe this weekend's (laughs) wet. Hopefully not, but uh, who knows? You know, that, that is the thing I think that uh, Charlie pointed out in the Spaces chat, that they're actually predicting some sort of rain in Saatchi. And like it, uh, I said back then is that it's almost been like a copy and paste job, like weather-wise, ever since we've had the Russian Grand Prix at the Saatchi Autodrome, like every year seems it's like sunny with like a bit of cloud. We've never seen anything resembling like a really nasty day. And that would uh, maybe throw a bit of a potential wrench into the works, uh, considering it's a track that, uh, you know, hasn't seen a lot of... Um, say technical challenges on the track itself. Anyways, going back to the news at hand, I love this one. This is a little bit of uh, maybe psychological warfare on the behalf of uh, Max Verstappen and uh, Lewis Hamilton. Lewis uh, believes that the pressure of uh, Max's uh, title bid may actually be uh, impacting him. And Lewis had to say, quote, obviously he won't admit to it and I'm not going to make an assumption, but I remember what it was like when I had my first title fight and it definitely mounted up. It was difficult. It was intense. I was going through a lot of different emotions and I didn't always handle it the best. And that's to be expected. There's a lot of pressure. You're working in a big team. There's a lot of self-expectation and pressure because the desire to win is huge. So I empathize and I understand that, but I know how we will continue to grow from this. End quote. Interesting quote from uh, Lewis, don't you think? Yeah, I think it's an interesting quote. And I also saw that Jalopnik had 
printed a story that was similar to this, quoting the same uh, the same phrase from Lewis, and they had said in the the headline, Lewis trying to get into Max's head. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are suggesting it's it's Lewis trying to play mind games and it's psychological warfare. I don't know that that's necessarily the case. At the end of the day, Lewis has been in the sport for an eternity. He's a reflective guy. He's got vast experiences to reflect back on. But I also don't know that we could even compare 07 and 08 to 2021. What Lewis went through in 2007 and 2008 is worlds different than what Max totally. is going through yeah. this year. You, you, you reflect back 2007, Matt or Lewis was a rookie. He's a rookie in Formula One. He rings off, I think, nine straight podium finishes to start his career. But his chief rival in 2007, although Kimi ultimately won the championship, was a teammate. And mm-hmm. that was a team that was going through turmoil because it was caught up in a cheating scandal. He was, he was, fighting and battling with a teammate, Alonzo, who came over expecting to be the the alpha driver and ultimately departed at the end of the season. Lewis went through an absolute hellstorm, not just his first year, but his two, first two years. So I would say that Max is probably experiencing a little bit of pressure, which we'll probably speak to in a couple of minutes, but I don't think you can compare it ultimately to what Lewis went through in, in his first season in the championship. But an interesting quote, but I would just chalk it up to the fact that Lewis is very articulate. He's a reflective guy. He's got worlds of experiences to to turn back to, but I don't think that he's necessarily trying to make psychological warfare or play mind games in this case. Yeah, I mean, it really is a, a world of difference between where they both are at the which point in their career I mean like say Lewis was a rookie Max has already been in Formula 1 for like 19 seasons even though it doesn't seem like it (laughs) even though he's uh, still a relatively uh, young driver but I mean you make a great point and the fact that uh, he did uh, or Lewis was uh, you know trying to prove himself obviously in his rookie season and his teammate Fernando Alonso and let's face it back in 2007 that is peak Fernando I mean he's just fresh off of uh, two world championships with uh, with Renault he goes to McLaren like uh, hoping to rep Replicate that and become like the next big thing in Formula One and, you know, rattling off championship after championship. And it was a completely different toxic relationship. I mean, we all have that Hamilton Rosberg, uh, you know, scenario that that situation in our mind, because that's relatively recent. I mean, that's only five years ago. Uh, you know, 2016 is when uh, when well, I mean, that's after that season when that uh, partnership uh, dissolved, but completely different. And I mean, the thing is that uh, where, where Max is right now, he already has several years of experience and Formula One under his belt. I mean, he's obviously the top driver in that team. I mean, Sergio is there in a a supporting role. And I mean, that's been a bit of a a mixed bag. But it it was interesting as uh, Lewis's I think reflections, I think, uh, is a good way to put it rather than, you know, a a shot across the bow or some sort of like psychological warfare, because uh, Max was uh, asked the same question or he was he was uh, asked by motorsport.com what he thought about Lewis's uh, comments. And he had to add to it, uh, quote, those comments. It means it just shows you that he doesn't really know me, which is fine. I also didn't don't need to know him how he is fully. But I just focus on myself and I really enjoyed out there in the front. And hopefully, of course, we can do it for a very long time. End quote. You know, one takeaway I I get from this is although Max's English is very good, (laughs) like there's a little bit kind of lost in translation as well. I can kind of tell that this is somebody whose native language is not English. And I mean, he gets his point across, but I I think that um, if he was asked this question in Dutch, if this was in the Dutch media, like the context would be a little bit uh, different because the the way that I I read this, uh, like English comments, it comes across as a little bit 
insensitive and like I don't give a damn kind of attitude. And I I don't think that is what what Max is completely trying to to say there. Which is I I I also don't need to know him, but I think what he's trying to say is because he goes on and sort of like expands on that how he is fully. I think what he's trying to say is I don't really know Lewis what he's like as a person as a character, but I I think there's a bit of a you know a bit of a disconnect there in the language. Yeah, I think the comment that threw me off a little bit, and I don't know that he intended to be disrespectful, but mm-hmm. now that you bring up the the concept of, hey, maybe this was lost in translation, and as somebody that's trying to learn a couple of other languages, I constantly make insensitive comments because I'm trying to translate word by word uh, a sentence structure in English into another language, and that doesn't always translate, and the context is different, and the cadence is different and things like that. So I can I can kind of get where you're going with this. Mm-hmm. The comment that did throw me off, though, was when he said, when questioned by the reporters about what Lewis had said, he made that comment, yeah, I'm so nervous I can barely sleep, he initially joked. It's so horrible to fight for a title. <laughs> I really hate it. Part of this, too, could also just be the fact that he's probably getting bombarded with these questions yeah. every single day. And you got to think that the media circus talks to Lewis, and then they run straight to Max. Can we get your response on this? Because they're looking for that inflammatory response so they can publish a story about it, right? Like the internet's all about clickbait, that sure. Instagram image, that that Twitter comment that can drive clicks and drive some re- ad revenue. I, I, As much as I maybe respect or don't respect Formula One journalists, at the end of the day, they're fishing for inflammatory comments because it's a really great way to, to run a headline. One of the things though that I did do earlier today, because somebody on Twitter had posted this comment and it was a super anti-max comment and they said look lewis in his career he has a 35 percent win rate in all the grand prix he's competed in and lewis has only got a 12 percent win rate i decided to go back and do a little bit of math i did a little bit of half asked internet research in the spirit (laughs) of bill simmons you internet sleuth you mr hamilton i I love it i am i did some actual work so (laughs) Max Verstappen has competed in 133 Grand Prix. He's won 17 Grand Prix. He scored 11 poles, and he's been on the podium 52 times. I think by any measure, that is a phenomenal start, especially Mm -hmm. when you consider that the early part of his career with Toro Rosso, he wasn't going to be super competitive there. He came onto the Red Bull team when they were going through that really ugly divorce the first couple of years with Renault, and it wasn't sure what their future was going to be or who their future power unit provider was going to be, and they had to make the transition to Honda. So for all of those reasons, that's a pretty remarkable start, especially in a world where he was going up against the likes of that ultra-dominant Mercedes team, and a Ferrari team that had real flashes, especially in 18 and for parts of 19. Now, Lewis, I went back and I reverse engineered this. So again, for Max, 133 Grand Prix, 17 wins, 11 poles, 52 podiums. Here's how Lewis's first 133 Grand Prix stacked up. 25 wins to 17, 34 poles to 11, 57 podiums, and one championship. And if you put this into context, you (laughs) look back, obviously 07 was a hyper-competitive year for McLaren. You Mm -hmm. could argue that they sabotaged their own championship that year. And ultimately they got caught cheating and it became a very ugly incident. 08, Alonso moves on. Lewis squeaks out the championship. 09, 010, 011, kind of lost in the wilderness a bit, a little bit of resurgence in 2012. And then 2013 was Lewis's first year with Mercedes. Of course, they were still rocking the V8. And then this would be inclusive of the first three or four Grand Prix in 2014. So despite the championship and the total domination from a polls perspective, 
It's not completely different, 57 podiums to 52 podiums. I thought that was pretty interesting. I don't know if anyone at home cares, but I just, <laughs> I wanted to contextualize the, the first 133 Grand Prix for both of these drivers. Yeah, you know, it really is interesting because, you know, you're looking at um, two guys that are completely different, um, you know, I, I guess stages of their careers, but, you know, it, it really is helpful i think to contextualize that and see okay well this is where lewis was in the team where mclaren was at that point in time compared to where red bull and taro russell were when max first came in and you know it it, it really those, those are some really really interesting numbers you know and the, sorry the go only ahead. Other, no i was just say the only other thing that i do think is worth probably mentioning within mm-hmm. the context of this conversation is lewis entered formula one when he's 22 yeah. Max is only 23. He turns 24, I think, next Thursday. Um, but ultimately, this is a kid that had a 100 Grand Prix under his belt at an age where Matt Lewis hadn't even sat in a Formula One car. So obviously, there's a little bit of a difference there. But I think it's it's helpful to kind of contextualize this because you can't you can't compare the entirety of Lewis's career versus Max's career. The, the other consideration too is, and this is where I think there probably is, and I want to ask you this because mm-hmm. we're talking about Lewis contextualizing and talking about his experiences in 07, and we're talking about Max reflecting and reacting to Lewis's comments about him. I think there is a little bit of pressure for both of these drivers. Oh, and, sure. And hear me out. Lewis has maybe two years left in the sport. And obviously next year we go into the new regs and we have no idea what it's going to look like. I think for Max, this is a situation where he's five, six years into his career, 133 Grand Prix deep. This year is kind of a, it's kind of a, I don't want to say give me, but it's kind of a, maybe a bit of a freebie for Red Bull because this was the year that initially we were supposed to transition to the new regs, right? Sure. In a way, Red Bull kind of got an extra year to develop and iterate on their current power unit and their current chassis and their current aero. Like, we shouldn't be driving these cars. If not for COVID, we would already be in the new reg. So Mm -hmm. in a way, the fact that we kind of stretched out the current regulations of the current formula by a year seemed to benefit Red Bull more than it did anyone. So if if I'm Max, like I'm in a situation where, hey, next year is a mystery. We have no idea what's going to happen. We know we're going to go in with a great power unit. We don't know what our designers, what our aerodynamicists, what our designers, we don't know what they're going to come up with and how effective that package is going to be. What we do know is that arguably we have the best car on the grid now. So this is an opportunity that may not be available to us next year. Now, Max still has a solid 10 years left in his career, and I think mm-hmm. there's going to be some opportunities. But for him, I think this is maybe a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, especially to steal potentially a championship away from somebody like Lewis Hamilton, deprive Lewis of his eighth title. And this could very well be the last shot that Lewis has at a meaningful championship uh, bout. So I think there's pressure on both sides. For Lewis, is like, is this my last shot to score that eighth and take the crown from Schumacher? Mm-hmm. And for Max, like, is this really the principal opportunity I'm going to have in the next three or four or five years? Because we could go into next year, we could miss the mark when it comes to car design, and we could have to rebuild for another two or three years to get back to where we are now. So I think both of these drivers are feeling significant pressure. I just think Both of them are smart enough not to necessarily let it show in public. Where I do think we're going to continue to see it show is is on the track. So having said all that, from your perspective, obviously you can can read uh, Max probably a lot better than I can in terms of his cadence and his language and his subtweets and his body language. Do you think he's stressed or do you think he's as cool and as calm as he seems to 
suggest he is. Yeah, I do have a couple of thoughts on that, and I'll give them to you after we break here for our very first word from our sponsor. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, well, welcome back to the show. You're listening to Scuderia F1 to Mr. Mark Daly and Mr. Mark Hamilton. We're talking about the championship battle between Max Verstappen and uh, Lewis Hamilton. And just before the break, Mark, you were asking me just uh, about where you, where I think that, uh, that, that Max is and maybe some of the, you know, just being able to maybe understand him a little bit uh, culturally better, uh, you know, you know, coming from a Dutch family myself, uh, speaking the language uh, that, that I do. And yeah, you know, he is an interesting case. And I was thinking that, like, I was reading a lot about that, uh, too, because uh, there were some, there, there was something, too, like, there, there's been, you know, lots of discussion how Max walked away from that crash at Monza. He didn't go to check on Lewis and all that. And, you know, again, I think that kind of goes back to what you were just talking about, sort of the clickbaity comments and stuff like that for, for people to still be talking about, about it at this point, because at the time we didn't have the the benefit of the super hyper slow-mo and nobody really knew. We knew like the the top of Lewis's car was damaged, but we didn't know until afterwards that uh, that Max's tire hit him in the head. And, you know, Lewis is still trying to get the car going. So you can kind of understand why Max was like, well, he's probably okay. You know, like <laughs> if he's still trying to drive, then, you know, know what should I really be worried but yeah it is kind of interesting too because like I sometimes understand like I, I see the way like the the attitude and the way that he he kind of carries himself and, and I kind of recognize that I I do kind of get the feeling that he's maybe not one of these really sort of extroverted really kind of like chatty open open people I, I think by nature he's maybe I don't want to say curt, but I think maybe a little bit more guarded in some of his uh, re responses. I don't think he's maybe like a really animated person, but I do sometimes think that his responses, they can be fairly to the point and, you know, he doesn't tend to over elaborate on things. And I, I think maybe I do recognize that he he does remind me to a certain extent of a, of an old friend of mine, just that uh, you know in Holland who kind of has a similar characteristic. So, you know that that might be kind of interesting, but a little bit uh, different. I mean, that might be a pure coincidence. But I, I mean, I do, and that's why I was saying earlier that that there was that one con or that one comment that you know it sounded very much like somebody who's not a native speaker of English saying something, like thinking it in his head, and then it, you know sort of translating it on the fly into a different language because that that is one of the funny things that you know regardless whatever your your mother tongue is if you learn another language and you become fluent in it 
I always find that, um, you know, having done this myself, that, you know, there, there is that sort of in, in the beginning that, you know, you do sort of think in your, your native uh, language and then kind of like translate it until you get to the point where it just becomes natural. Like you, you might not have like the vocabulary, the grammar down a hundred percent, but you get a lot more comfortable with it. And I think that Max, you know, I mean, people in, you know, in, in a lot of those European countries all grow up learning English, but you know, there, there is a different kind of like learning in school and, and speaking it. And I mean, I'm not going to take anything away from it. I think his English is, uh, you know, very, very good, but I do seem a little bit of uh, translation in it, but yeah, it, it very is a very, very interesting comparison uh, between the two. But I, I think the one thing that I find is that I think at this point in his career that 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 Max, yeah, there's got to be some pressure on him to deliver and and win this championship. <clears throat> Excuse me, but uh, I don't know. I, I think it might be a little bit less considering, you know, he's not like fighting for it in his rookie season or is it in his sophomore season. I mean, he does have the benefit of, like you say, 133 Grand Prix under his belt. And I know the guy doesn't like getting passed. And I think that goes back to a lot of what we saw at Redifilio at Monza a couple of weeks ago. I mean, like he had the opportunity to back out of that. But I mean, we, we, we've seen that like over the course of his career so far that he doesn't like being passed. I mean, they, they basically created a rule around that, you know, Max and his, his whole, you know, uh, these the sort of uh, moves under braking, which had a lot of the other drivers uh, up in arms. So I think you know, mentally he might be a little bit in a better place than, than Lewis is. But again, I mean, Lewis has been through this a lot of times, whereas Max, he might be saying that, um, you know, he's not feeling the pressure, but he has to be because he's, this is something each and every week has been different because there's been ups and downs. And I mean, this, I mean, this is a lot tighter than we've seen for a good number of years. And ultimately who knows what it turns out by the time we get to, to Yas Marina in a couple of months. Does that answer your question? <laughs> I know I felt felt like I started to ramble there a little bit. Uh, no, Mark, that was but, uh, <laughs> that that was great. Yeah, it makes total sense, and I yeah. think it segues into the next news item. Was that? Uh, let me pull up my agenda here. Was was that the uh, the the one that I was just uh, referencing? Uh, Max talking about uh, what what he said. People are being hypercritical about the crash at uh, at Monza a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I, I don't do. I know that there was uh, some desire from some of our listeners to 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 talk about this one in in the spaces chat. We didn't actually get a chance to do that. Um, yeah, I, I don't think we need really need to discuss the mechanics of it, but I think that this one is interesting. I mean, I, again, here's uh, another Max quote, and he has to say, "quote There are a lot of hypocrites in the world, that's for sure." I mean, I jumped out of the car and I looked to the left, and of course, uh, he's still trying to reverse, shaking the wheel, trying to get away under my car. So I'm thinking he's absolutely fine. Also flying on Monday or Tuesday to America to attend a gala. I think only you do that if you feel fine. So I think uh, already there, everything was all under control. Uh, end quote. So a, again, a bit sort of like a choppy uh, English, but uh, you can kind of understand that. But I mean, wh when it comes down to these sort of um, these questions, I mean, th this is more of a when it comes to to checking on somebody that's like injured in you know like a, in a sporting competition and and sort of walking away knowing that person is, is hurt or not really caring about that that's more of a that's a character thing i think more than say a sportsmanship thing you know like i mean people will shake hands and kind of give respect to their rivals but if you know if somebody was seriously hurt you would think that they would uh, you know definitely check in on them i know that lewis said he was uh, surprised but 
as Max kind of pointed out from his point of view, it still kind of looked like Lewis was trying to get going. So you can kind of, I mean, I understand the perspective from, from both Lewis and, and Max, right? Yeah, this is one of those times where I would probably be a little bit more supportive of Max. I didn't necessarily like the comments, and I think the reference to the Met Gala, which is what he was talking about Mm -hmm. with respect to Lewis jetting away to America, I thought that was irrelevant to the question. The question is, why didn't you go over and check on Hamilton? I don't think you need to make that dig. It's it's kind of like one of those low-handed blows where you ask somebody one question, and they use that as an opportunity to make 17 other jabs. But in the context of the moment, and we're not talking about the crash, because we've litigated that to death. The FIA ruled it's a three-place grid penalty for... Max Verstappen. We move on. The Red Bull teams moved on. I know Marco was grumbling a little bit over the course of the last (laughs) week, but my sense was when I looked at this, at first my reaction was really negative, but when I go back and review that footage, it's one, it's clear Hamilton's okay, but Mm -hmm. it's also clear that he's still trying to wrestle control of the car. And Mm -hmm. it still looks like he's trying to move the car and the wheels are spinning. So if I'm Max, obviously I'm frustrated because I feel like I probably wasn't at fault for the incident and my race has been wrecked. And Mm -hmm. obviously there's a sense of relief because um, Lewis isn't gonna be able to score any points either, but I kind of get it. Like, look, he's okay. He's trying to operate the car. It might not even be safe for me to go near it. That said, to me, obviously, I see my car perched on top of his. I know his race is over. And I think purely as a, as a mark of respect, I'm just going to lean in and tap him on the helmet or give him a quick wave. I don't think that would have taken much. I think it was not a good look for him just to walk away. And not only that, but he walked straight across the track, which is a sign of disrespect to the marshals who are clearly trying to flag him to stay off of a track when there's still cars on the circuit. So I didn't like the fact that he didn't lean in. I kind of get it. Um, but I again, I'm ready to move on from this topic and start focusing on the races at hand. You know, like the, the way that this question was asked to him, I, I kind of get the feeling that, again, this was one of those kind of questions that's, uh, you know, they're, they're looking for that quick, uh, that exactly. clickbaity, like inflammatory thing that like a ton is going to get a ton of views, right? And my take on this kind of goes back to the question that you asked me just after the break, just about like Max and his character and maybe something that uh, that I read into it, like, you know, reading in the Dutch media or watching him, uh, you know, speaking on, you know, Dutch language videos and things like that, is that I think that Max has like a bit of a, a temper when... I mean, he's, oh, not, yes. he's not one of these guys that will come out sort of effing and blinding and, you know, you know, completely losing it and, and smashing things uh, and stuff like that, where it sort of comes out that he gets kind of snarky, right? And th- when, I, when I look at that, like, I, I, I read this quote that we just read here about the, the hypocrites and then, you know, that, that kind of unnecessary comment, you know, sort of like almost subtweeting, you know, that we're talking about, yeah. you know, like, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I'm, yeah, I should say that he's not subtweeting because because it's not Twitter, but you kind of get what I'm saying, right? Is that you know exactly what he's talking about, about also flying to Monday or Tuesday to America to attend a gala. You know exactly what he's talking about, who he's talking about, but he's not coming out and say it. But to me, that's that that's that that aggression coming out in that quote that he doesn't like the question that it's it's really kind of gotten under his skin. But rather than just ignoring it, he has to address it in some sort of way. And it comes out in this kind of like snarky, kind of irritated, you know, kind of 
it's it's a dumb comment, honestly. Yeah, for sure. And the other thing we don't know too is how many times was he asked that same question that exactly. day? Exactly. It's very possible he was asked the question 20 times. He responded respectfully on it on the 21st time. He's like, I've had enough of this question. I'm frustrated with the situation. I'm frustrated sitting in front of the, the media. He's probably been answering this question on uh, radio interviews and telephone interviews and Zoom calls for two weeks. I'm, I'm sure he was he was a little bit frustrated to be uh to be totally honest that said going back to the incident i still think he should have leaned in and tapped on helm to uh lewis's helmet and give him a wave and stayed off the track but but again i think we're uh, i think we're both ready to move on i think the only other thing i would comment on here too is i think a lot of his body language and a lot of his language and it's not necessarily aggressive language it's just he to your earlier point he's very economical with the words that Mm. he uses he's very sharp and he's very pointed some of that could just be a byproduct of having grown up around that in terms of a leadership structure within the red bull academy but i think a lot of that's his father he's very 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 similar to his father like if you go back Mm -hmm. to the mid 90s and you look at interviews with his father it's very simple very 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 curt very to the point not necessarily rude Mm -hmm. um, but not necessarily warm and i think maybe in 2021 we expect a different approach from our professional athletes because we think of them as ambassadors and celebrities and and all of those other kind of things. But his father was very curt, was very pointed, was very short. And we also know verbatim that he grew up in a very militaristic type of environment with his father, where his father identified that he was going to be a Formula One driver Mm -hmm. at an incredibly young age. And he basically rode him his entire career. So for all of those reasons, I think this is how we've ended up with the personality that is uh, Max Verstappen. Yeah, I think the best way to maybe describe it is that, uh, you, you know, first of all, the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. So I think it's very much like father, like son. And I think that the, the word that kind of popped into my my mind as you were discussing that comparison between Max and his, his father, Yoss, was that, that, that Max has almost been very carefully curated over the over the, uh, the the course of his his life and i mean you know it, his career's obviously been very well managed as uh, you know through carding and all these uh, other you know his racing career until he got to, you know, to to formula 1 i mean obviously his dad being a form the former formula 1 driver himself knew you know, what sort of trajectory Max had to go on. But, you know, it really is kind of interesting if you go back. I mean, it, I'll, I'll be honest, it's been a long time since I've seen an, an interview with the, with the Jos Verstappen. I mean, back in the day, I mean, when I was living in Holland, he was all over the place in magazines, on TV. I mean, and and you could tell back then that if they, and, and I might add that he was driving for one of the, you know, the, the uh, you know, bottom ranked teams like the Alfa Romeo or Williams of, of that era, right? With uh, with Arrows Orange Race. Or, or TWR, whatever it was called, because you know they kind of morphed through a, a couple of different uh, identities at uh, you know, that time. But you could tell then that uh, the interest and the passion was there with, uh, you know, in Holland, that they, they were just kind of like waiting for a, a driver that was good enough that could, uh, you know, get on with a with a big team. <laughs> just little did we know that, you know, 20 years later, or 15 years later, it wasn't going to be him, but it was going to be his son. So it's kind of interesting how that uh, that worked out. But uh, moving along, this one, this one's kind of interesting, just to kind of like making these kind of then and now comparisons. So we kind of move off from, you know, Jos Verstappen and, and, and Max Verstappen then and now. Now we go from Valtteri Bottas then and now. A couple of years ago at the, the, the Russian Grand Prix, he was kind of salty about Total Wolf's comments about him being the ideal wingman, I guess him being 
Maverick to Lewis Hamilton's Iceman, I guess, if you want to use a, like a vague 1980s Top Gun reference. But Bottas is saying that he would accept team orders to support Hamilton's title bid. And, you know, I, I got a lot of respect for Voltaire. I think that uh, he has been a great teammate and not just to, to, to Lewis, but also a great teammate to Mercedes in general and has helped them win all those constructors titles since uh, he joined the team in 2017. But I can't help uh, but feel that this is kind of, um, how do I want to say this? Buoyed by the fact that uh, that Valtteri is leaving at the end of the year, he's going to, um, to to Alfa Romeo. He doesn't have a shot at the drivers' championship. They obviously have the the opportunity to win at constructors, and I think he's just doing the the right thing. You know, he's saying the right thing, and obviously, what he can do to to go out and kind of cement his legacy at uh, Mercedes and as a Mercedes driver, as just do what he's done all along. In the NBA, there's a term that we throw around called a contract year. And when we talk about a player <laughs> being in a contract year, it's a player that's coming out of a, a current deal. So mm-hmm. they're in the last year of a five-year deal. And all of a sudden, they know they're going to hit the free agent market that summer. They know that they're going to have to acquire as much leverage as they possibly can. And historically, it's not unusual. And you typically don't see this with the upper echelon talent because they produce consistently year in and year in. This is kind of more like the middle of the pack kind of caliber. But you'll see these guys put up these surprising campaigns in the last year of a deal where maybe for their career, they're 15 and four, and all of a sudden they go (laughs) 18 and six or 18 and seven. And ultimately, the, the numbers are empty calories in the sense that they're taking a lot more shots and they're turning the ball over more, but they're trying to beef up their numbers so they can get a little bit of more, a little bit more leverage when it comes to the free agent market. I think in Valtteri's case, that's probably pretty similar in the sense that, Hey, until recently I had no security. I had no deal next year. And you make Mm -hmm. a great point, which is all of a sudden my future is secure. So no matter what happens the rest of this year, I've got a ride next year. That's one less thing I have to worry about. And on top of it, he's got a multi-year deal, which is something he never had with Mercedes, which is something you and I have talked about. So absolutely, he's going to accept team orders and move over to support Lewis because he's a great team player. And you and I have talked about this before. He is everything that this team could have wanted Mm -hmm. from him. Is he a wingman? Damn right. Is he the best wingman that Lewis has probably ever driven with? Absolutely. There was zero friction and he did everything necessary to get this team into the Constructors' Championship contention every single year. And they won it in 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. And they're on pace to win it again this year. And even if you look this year, we keep talking about how damn good that Red Bull car is. Sergio Perez is invisible. Two podiums in 14 races. That is a total failure. And I get it. There's circumstances. There was crashes. There was there were circumstances that led to that. But that's mm-hmm. unacceptable. Valtteri Bottas sitting at 141 points, third in the championship. He's doing enough to keep this team in contention for a constructors championship. And I hope he wins it this year so he can leave this team on a high. Yeah, it certainly would uh, help uh, cement his legacy and and, and go out uh, for a, uh, on a high note as he goes to open a new chapter at Alfa Romeo. It was time for another break. When we come back, we have news as Miami we, Miami finally I'm going has, to Miami. <laughs> okay, Will Smith, let's just uh, bring it down a notch. We'll talk about that after the break. So don't go away. We'll be right back. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And if we actually had enough money to buy the rights or, you know, pay the royalties to play Will Smith's uh, Miami, this would this would be it right there. But uh, for those of you who, uh, you know, recognize and know that song, it's probably going through your head uh, right now. But yes, finally, after what seems like an eternity, the Miami or the I don't even know what they're going to be calling it. But uh, anyways, we do have uh, provisionally a 21 race calendar for next year that's still to be uh, finalized and ratified by by the World Motorsport Tech Council. So, I mean, it's it's obviously not a surprise that it's going to be on the calendar. I mean, that's been, uh, you know, official for a while. But what did surprise me is the date that this is going to go down. And, and that's on the weekend of the 6th to the 8th of May 2022, which is about the week before typically we see the Spanish Grand Prix, which is usually usually middle third weekend uh, of May. Then you have the Canadian Grand Prix, which is typically the first weekend in June. So, you know, one of the things I love to see when you get to this time of year is the provisional Formula One calendar that's going to come out uh, for the, 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 the following year. So when, when I see this time slot for Miami really gets me asking a lot of questions what the heck is next year's calendar going to look like? And are we going to see it kind of like blocked off into more geographic chunks, which they kind of already do, but we we do see, and I know obviously a lot of this has been dictated by the pandemic and a lot of the travel restrictions and lockdowns and logistical nightmares that everybody's had to contend with, not just Formula One over the past uh, 18 months going on almost two bloody years now, unfortunately. But um, it really makes me wonder, what is this going to look like? Are we going to have Canada I like I assume we're going to go to Baku then we're going to go to to Miami are we going to see Montreal move up a couple of weeks and then slot uh, Spain in at the beginning of the European season before uh, you know, like the, the usual races that we see in, 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 well, obviously Spain, France, Great Britain, Hungary, etc. So I, I'm looking forward. I hope that this uh, provisional calendar drops soon. Yeah, this date is exceptional. And I've seen a couple of provisional calendars floating around, but they're not necessarily from sources that I would trust. So mm-hmm. I, I didn't want to I didn't want to reference them on the show. What we do know is that this event isn't going to be back to back with Canada. So I think the assumption early on was that this was going to be an event that would it's going to be towards the end of May. Mm-hmm. So it's getting pretty toasty down in southern Florida at that point, but that it would be at the end of May because they would link it up with Canada because it makes more sense to come to North America if you're going to be able to do a double header than it is for a single event. It's not the case. That's good news for Montreal because it creates some separation in the calendar and they can build it up and they can market it and they can attract fans independent of this one. Because I think some of the concern was that if you put them back to back, ultimately Miami could take a little bit of shine off of Montreal. I don't know that would necessarily happen, but it was obviously a risk, especially when it came to attracting well-heeled fans and sponsors. But I think where I get excited about this is it's going to take place in the beginning of May. So the challenge, I think, oftentimes for the U.S. Grand Prix taking place in October is 
on Sunday, you are going head-to-head with college football and you're going head-to-head with the NFL. That is tough, especially when the race is being staged in Austin. So you look at May, well, it's the NHL playoffs, it's the NBA playoffs, it's early in the Major League Baseball season. Nobody's going to be super amped up about any of that at that point. And the NFL season's not on. So you've kind of carved out a bit of a niche. And then the other thing that I find really exciting about this, and this has been especially painful for you and me over the course of the last couple of years, is Mm -hmm. we've had to wait until October to start getting races in our hemisphere. So it is 5 a.m., 5 a.m., 5 a.m. starts week after week after week. Now, all of a sudden, we get a race in May, just a couple of months into the the campaign, where we can watch it midday. Like, this is good for us. So I'm also really, really excited about that the track is coming together. I think we've seen lots of photos. I think it's going to be interesting. It's obviously pretty flat. There's there's no elevation. I think it's going to be a great event from an atmosphere and excitement perspective. I think they're going to go to every imaginable length to create value and to amp up the experience for those who are in attendance. We now know that the tickets are going to go on sale shortly. This is something that people have been waiting for for a very, very long time. But it's also crazy to think that this event in May is now only eight months away. The official name of the venue, and you're right, we don't necessarily know what the the event is going to be called. Could it be the Hard Rock Grand Prix at Miami Gardens? We don't know. Mm -hmm. We do know the track is going to be called the Miami International Autodrome. And what we also know is that Stephen Ross and his team of race organizers are paying nothing for this event. And this goes back to that agreement that Stephen Ross and the Qatari Sovereign Wealth Fund had with Liberty when they stepped aside to allow Liberty to buy Formula One back in 2016. So this is kind of a freebie for them, but at the same time, this is a great high profile event in the U S that will obviously bring tons of exposure to formula one. Initially, I was really excited about going. I'm a little bit more timid now simply because I'm getting a sense of what the ticket pricing is going to be. Mm -hmm. And We'll have to see. We'll have to see. This one isn't a slam dunk for me. I'd love to see the 5.4 kilometer, 19 turn track, but every event I have to weigh the value of going. Yeah, you know, looking at the uh, you know the, the 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 track map, which it's it's been out there for quite a while. I mean, it really is kind of cool. I mean, you're gonna have the pits basically right up against uh, the back of Hard Rock Stadium there. I mean, you have that really long straightaway on the back, and then on the south side of the stadium, it looks like uh, just based on the photo. I mean, you got a long kind of sweeping kind of. It looks very Coda esque, you know, that that uh, back half of the circuit there when you come back around the other side of Hard Rock uh, Stadium. So, it's gonna be cool. Um, yeah, the the one. One thing I must admit that's also a little bit off-putting is like the, the the rumored ticket prices, and you know, like you say, I mean, that's a little bit uh, off-putting for myself, you know. But uh, I was just thinking too, what you were talking about, like you know, maybe it's a little bit off-putting for Montreal, or maybe they're uh, breathing a bit of a sigh of relief knowing that they're not going up against uh, Miami, you know, a week or two weeks later, but. You know, the reputation that, that, that Montreal has as a destination, as a, you know, as a cultural city, as a Formula One host, I mean, there, there's a lot of people that love going to Montreal just because of the nightlife, because of the race. I mean, as a destination, it seems to be loved by the teams, by the, you know, everybody involved, the media, by the fans. So, yeah, I mean, maybe putting Miami up against it might be a little bit of a detractor, but I think that Montreal is enough in a draw of itself that, you know, maybe in the first year or two, Miami might be a bit of a draw just because of a, a novelty thing. But I, I think that Montreal, I mean, they've been on the calendar for, for 
countless years, right? I mean, I think it's well established in, in terms of the race and just the fact that uh, it is known for, you know, as, as a party spot for, a, you know, an exceptionally good place to go watch a race, all, all the things that, you know, te- or tick all the right boxes. I think that's a great point. And the other thing to consider, too, is by the time we get to June next year, when presumably the Canadian Grand Prix will be held, mm-hmm. it'll be the first time in three years. <sighs> we haven't seen Crazy. a Canadian Grand Prix in 2019. We're going to have two Canadian drivers on the grid for the first time. And I- I'm really curious to see how the pent-up demand in Quebec and Ontario for this event will be, plus the combined enthusiasm in the U.S. Northeast. We know a ton of people make the trek from New York State, Mm -hmm. from Massachusetts, from Connecticut. There's probably a lot of people there that probably aren't necessarily financially in the ballgame in terms of going to Miami, but hey, we can drive four, five, six hours, spend the weekend in Montreal, have an absolute blast taking the city, taking the culture, taking Mm -hmm. the nightlife, and drive home again. So I, I I think there's probably a bit of that too, where maybe Miami serves more of a, a kind of a an exclusive international clientele and attracts a lot of international visitors. And Montreal continues to cater to the Northeast. So we're talking about, like I said, Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York State, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and of course, Ontario and, and Quebec. So basically, you're saying, whereas, uh, you know, uh, Miami is going to be like for the for the jet setters that Montreal is more of your blue collar Formula One destination as as much as it can be. (laughs) And I would just add as well that and we've I've talked about this many times. I understand that Liberty's ultimate vision is to have three races in the U.S. Like this is this is just step one in a three step plan or a two step plan. I don't know how many steps there are. I guess if there's three races, it'd be three steps. So it's the second step in the three step plan. But ultimately, they want to have a third race, and maybe that's a street race in Las Vegas, or maybe they find their way to the West Coast, or maybe they end up back at Indianapolis. And mm-hmm. I think that's a and I think that's a, a track that's showing increased interest in bringing Formula One back because you can tap into the Midwest and Chicago and Indy, Indiana and some of the neighboring states. But I think Liberty's long term plan is they want four or five races in North America between Mexico, Canada and the United States. You know, it's, it's interesting, you know, I wouldn't be at all surprised if that uh, that third race, you know, lands in Las Vegas, either on a temporary street circuit or maybe a purpose-built uh, facility out in the desert there somewhere. I mean, you look now at the su- uh, success that the uh, the NHL has seen with the uh, with the, uh, the Las Vegas Golden, uh, Golden Knights. You see now with the, the Las Vegas Raiders, and I mean, the I mean that beautiful stadium that they built for that uh, for for that team there. I think that uh, that uh, Vegas, uh, you know, obviously it has uh, you know a, a reputation as a destination for for nightlife for for gambling. I mean, Las Vegas is like literally nowhere else on earth. But I mean, we see with uh, you know a couple of these uh, premier uh, sports franchises that have uh, you know gone there and sprung up and have been successful. And well, I mean, Raiders are the Raiders, but <laughs> I mean the fact is that they've invested the owners of a invested all that money to build that massive uh, stadium there that they're committed to uh, you know becoming a, a success there and I mean the Golden Knights have been you know in very short order become a very successful and very competitive uh, NHL team and I mean obviously the the Raiders haven't been there quite as long I mean after re- recently moving there from from LA but still I mean just the based on the investment alone with those two, two teams I wouldn't be surprised that there is some move to make a Las Vegas sort of an elite destination or uh, host for elite sports franchises and teams. Yeah, I think you've absolutely hit on something. I think getting a race up and going in 
the state of California could be very, very challenging bureaucratically, mm-hmm. logistically. You don't necessarily have an FIA grade one track ready to go. The cost of building one would be prohibitive. But if you look at Vegas, this is a destination city whose entire economy is based around attracting people and attracting tourism. And again, real estate's much, much cheaper in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. The city is experiencing exponential economic and population growth. You know, maybe, maybe for a couple of years, it is a street track. Um, and, and obviously that would have a certain appeal, especially if it was held at dusk or if it was held at night, it would look exceptional on TV. Wow. You Great build point. a purpose built circuit on the outskirts of the city, maybe near, near Henderson or something like that. But mm-hmm. I think you're right. Like if you looked at the West, it would probably be Vegas. And then you could potentially open the season in Vegas. You could end the season in Vegas, obviously May, June, July, August would be off limits just in terms of the heat, but it would be a great event to pair maybe with Austin and Mexico City on the back half of October. But I think that would be a, a good place to go because you also tap into the West Coast. It's a four-hour yeah. drive from Los, Los Angeles, for instance, a 20-minute flight. You can tap into some pretty significant metro population areas. Yeah, you know, I mean, geographically, if you look, say, at potential four races in uh, in North America, you have Coda, you've got uh, Miami, you've got Montreal, and then, say, you know, you put uh, potentially a race into Vegas. I mean, geographically, I mean, that's a, a pretty decent spread for all the, uh, you know, the, the potential destinations on the West Coast and, you know, and, and and further afield. I mean, Vegas is already a destination that you can get to fairly easily from, from many other metropolitan, uh, you know, centers around the entire continent. So, you know, it, it's not all that difficult. I mean, uh, you know, you and I can get to, to Vegas, uh, you know, well, I mean, travel restrictions are a different thing at this point in time, but under normal circumstances, it's a pretty easy place to access. Absolutely. Yeah. And Dominicali has spoken openly about Vegas in the past, that obviously Miami was the preference. Mm-hmm. And I think now that we've secured Miami and the track is being laid down and we've got dates, I think Liberty will probably turn its attention to identifying another race and another opportunity. For those of you that have YouTube at home and a Wi-Fi or high-speed internet connection, I highly encourage you to go to YouTube and check out the AD. 81, 82, I think 83, and maybe 84, what, Las Long Vegas Beach? Grand Prix. Oh, long, okay. So we've raced we've raced in Vegas before in a parking lot at Caesars Palace. It looks terrible, but just for the sake of humoring yourselves, I, I would encourage you to go check that out. Oh, that's very cool. You know, that that I actually don't remember that, but that kind of predates... Uh, Dude, I think most of it. <laughs> most honestly, of us it's here. so funny. So the parking <laughs> lot was so small. The track, the layout actually just turned back on itself over and over and over again because it was the only way you could get a kind of a, a significant distance. Mm-hmm. It looked terrible, just terrible. But that was a different era of Formula One. Yeah, I mean, uh, totally right. I mean, uh, back in those days, you could literally throw up a Formula One track in the middle of a parking lot as long yeah, as you had some. Yeah, safety didn't matter. Yeah, as long as you had some like some old tires and some cones and some you know so some temporary bleachers that you could put up somewhere i mean how times have uh, changed anyways time for a quick break when we come back on the other side we've got some more news to talk about sort of off the track uh, news when it comes to formula one we'll talk about that in just a moment so please don't go away we'll be right back
Okay, welcome back to the show. We're talking about, uh, well, a lot of things. We've been talking about the Miami Grand Prix, which will probably be named something else. I really wonder what they're going to call it, if they're going to stick with that. But, you know, it's interesting. Um, there are a couple of things that uh, that, that have uh, popped up uh, this week. And the mayor of Imola in uh, Italy, where we've seen the, uh, what is the Romagna Grand Prix, formerly the San Marino Grand Prix, has said that uh, it is set to join the calendar permanently. Well, at least until the the end of uh, 2025. And I don't know uh, whether or not uh, this is true. We haven't uh, seen or heard anything yet. You know, as we talked about a little bit uh, earlier before the break, that uh, once that uh, provisional 2022 calendar drops, we'll we'll know which uh, tracks are going to be hosting races. But for me, this I, I kind of like this because it kind of adds to that, what I like to think is kind of that... Um, Goldilocks zone, the, the the just right, that nice mix of the old tracks, the historical tracks, plus the new tracks. And I think you really need in this day and age, as much as you have to be able to, you know, embrace new tracks, new destinations, and, and expand that uh, fan base, I think a lot of the draw for Formula One is the history. And, uh, you know, you have these historic tracks. That's why for me, I mean, you, you need races like Monza, you need uh, races like Silverstone. And, uh, you know, the the list goes on. I mean, uh, as we've talked about many times over the months and years, that it's almost unthinkable that there isn't a German Grand Prix, just like for many years there wasn't a French Grand Prix. So to see Imola come back on the, 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 the calendar, I think would be awesome. So you just touched on what the caveat is here. So I agree. Mm, okay. I think we've been incredibly blessed the last two years that during this COVID pandemic era, we've had three tracks in Italy, which we could lean into in Monza yeah. and Mugello and Imola. Thank goodness we had that opportunity because no other country in the world presents us with those type of opportunities. Mm -hmm. So here's the catch. When I was looking at that ultra sketchy provisional calendar <laughs> earlier today, it listed... Manny Coors, French Grand Prix, or Imola. So they oh, okay. share a date, which means that only one of them presumably is going to make the final cut. So I decided to go and do a little bit of digging because I wanted to understand what the current contractual status is. And Manny Coors, did I say Manny Coors? What the current, what the current um, status is of the French Grand Prix. The French Grand Prix contract ends this year. Oh, so okay. they are That's out of contract. And if you remember, uh, the French Grand Prix ran ran consistently right up to 2008. It was off the calendar for a decade, mm -hmm. came back in 2018. They raced it twice. We missed the event in 2020. It came back this year. It's not been a well-loved and well-received event globally because it looks terrible on TV. Mm -hmm. It's basically just a giant concrete slab. There's no grass. There's no gravel. There's no sand. It doesn't look good. The drivers don't necessarily love it. This year was better than I think we've seen before, but it still wasn't great. But all of that aside, I don't want to dismiss the idea of a national Grand Prix because of mm -hmm. one lousy track, especially when there might be other options in France. The other thing that would be shocking is if we lost the French Grand Prix in light of the fact that we have two exceptional young French talents in the sport, mm -hmm. obviously Esteban Ocon won a Grand Prix this year and Pierre Gasly won a, a, a Grand Prix last year. If ever there would have been a motivation on behalf of commercial interests in France to keep a Grand Prix in that country, you think it would be now because you can sell and market the entire event around the fact that you have two young French drivers and maybe two and a half if you consider 
Charles Leclerc, exactly. but I think he really, yeah. I think he really leans into his Monegasque heritage. 100%, but ultimately, yeah. there's tons of French talent in the sport right now. Mm-hmm. But that that would be the catch here is that presumably if you add Imola, who are you going to drop? Because we're not going to be at a 24 race calendar next year. We're not going to be 25. And something has to give to accommodate Miami as well, mm-hmm. especially when you consider that Canada's going to come back next year. So yeah. I'm very curious to see what the provisional calendar looks like, just as you are. Yeah, you know, that, uh, that that's a great piece of information because I honestly did not realize that the, the contract that they had with the French Grand Prix at Paul Ricard ended after. After this Paul year, Ricard. yeah, I cannot believe I said Manny Cor. Yeah, slap me on the wrist. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that that's the thing, and I mean that is interesting that the, the 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 rumored date for either one of those races is on the same weekend. And as excited as I was to see a return to France for Formula One to see a French Grand Prix back on the calendar, I must admit that I admit that I find myself quite frustrated with uh, the way that they've um, employed. Paul Ricard. I mean, like you say, I mean, it, it is aesthetically not the greatest track to look at just because it is basically one multi-hectare plot of land that's been paved from one side to the other. So, I mean, it, it doesn't have the, it's not soft and easy on the eyes as uh, a lot of other manicured racetracks are, but what they do have in their favor is that this Rubik's Cube of possibilities and combinations to, um, you know, um, to, to link the track together. I can't remember. It was it was something ridiculous. I, I, I seem to remember remember reading and I, the, the number might be completely wrong but I thought there was something like 200 configurations that they could use at that track and then they've got that bogus and I know it's a bit of a safety thing but that uh, the chicane down the middle of the Mistral straight at the back obviously they're trying to slow the cars down but I, I can't help myself and be frustrated each and every year when I see that and think well you know you have all these options is this the best that you can do for the cars that we have I, I know that not every configuration is going to be ideal for a Formula One car, but there's got to be something better. But however, you know, on on the flip side, you know, if you're going to make me choose between one or the other, you know, that, that that's a pretty tough call because, you, you know, I, I've really enjoyed the, the last couple of races that we've had at Imola. I think that it's, it's, it's delivered nicely and, you know, filling in obviously in the middle of a pandemic and the, the racing that we've had there has been pretty good. And, you know, we've had some, some pretty memorable moments there in the two races that we've had in 20 and 21. But, you know, if you're asking me to give up uh, a French Grand Prix to bring Imola back, you know, that, that that's a tough one because I like to see a French Grand Prix. I'm just not convinced that that Paul Ricard, you know, is is the place to do it. And if so, is there a better way that they could run a Grand Prix on that track? It's it you know, for me, it's a difficult call to make. I don't know how you feel about it. I agree. Racingnews365.com is reporting this as the provisional 2022 F1 calendar. So I'll run through this quickly. Sure. So the season's going to be different than what we've seen in the past. I think historically we've been we've been accustomed to Australia, Melbourne breaking open the campaign. We mm-hmm. look forward to Australia. We go to Australia and we have a two-week break. It looks like, and this is consistent with everything we've heard, the Formula One seasons will now begin and end in the Middle East, in the Gulf region. So we're going to start the campaign in Bahrain, which we knew because we mm-hmm. know we're going to have winter testing. So we'll yep. have winter testing. Yep. We'll open the campaign in Bahrain, followed by Jeddah, which will be converted, will be switched to Kadia in a couple of years, but will be Jeddah, followed by Australia, China, Miami, 
Two weeks later, we're in Spain. A week later, we're in Monaco. Two weeks later, we're in Azerbaijan. A week later, we're in Canada. And then on the, the for the 10th race, on the 3rd of July, it's going to be either Great Britain or Australia. A week later, it's going to be either Great Britain or Australia. On the 17th of July, it's going to be France or Imola, followed by Hungary, Belgium, the Netherlands, Italy, Monza, Russia. The 18th race of the campaign, the 2nd of October, will be either Singapore or Turkey, which is interesting because Mm -hmm. I didn't know that that was a conversation. And then, of course, Japan, Kota, Mexico, Brazil, and then Abu Dhabi. So that's a conventional close. I think that's what we're used to seeing, Japan, Kota, Mexico, Brazil, and Abu Dhabi. The beginning of the campaign is obviously very different than anything we've seen. We haven't seen Australia since 19. We haven't seen China since 19. This will be the first time we're obviously in Miami. You know, I, I think that conversation uh, around uh, Turkey and Singapore has to be sort of pandemic related. I, I think that totally under normal agree. circumstances, I think that that isn't even a, a conversation that uh, that we're having. I think that, uh, you know, the way that we had the race at Istanbul Park last year, again, filled in perfectly for the circumstances and what we needed. And I think that once we start getting back to something approaching normal life, I think that that has to go back to being Singapore. They seem very, con, you know, committed to, to going there. They seem to co- put on a pretty good uh, event. And, you know, the night race there seems to work uh, really well. So just kind of going back to the conversation we were having earlier in the show, what is the weekend that the Canadian Grand Prix is being put on? I'm guessing yeah, it's about question. the 20th. 19th of June. 19th, 19th of, June. of June. One week after Baku. Okay. And two weeks before what will be either Great Britain or Austria. Okay. So basically, if, if that uh, provisional calendar that you found is anywhere close to what they're considering, then Canada basically moves two weeks further back from its, uh, or, you know, I guess forward uh, into the season. Yeah, based and, on its con- and now that I look at the calendar, it's starting to make a little bit more sense. So we start in the Middle East, Bahrain, Jeddah, Australia. Yep. Then we're in China. Mm-hmm. We'll cross the Pacific to get to Miami. Yep. So there's two weeks between China and the United States. So two weeks between China and Miami. You go into Miami, and then two weeks later, you do a race in Spain, a week yep. later, a race in Monaco. You've yep. got two weeks off until Azerbaijan, and then you're right back to Canada, and then you flip back to Great Britain, which is maybe a five-hour flight from Montreal, so nothing crazy. Yeah, yeah, that, that seems a lot more more doable. So that, that'll be cool. That Like, like I'm saying... It'll be cool to see what that uh, provisional calendar comes out when it's uh, released by uh, official sources. But, you know, I, I can't help but th- feeling that that one isn't too far off what we might see. But uh, it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, who sticks on and who drops off. Anyways, uh, time for a quick break here. And uh, the next story here is already, um, you know, created quite a little bit of a conversation on our social media channels. And for Gen DTS, this one might be, uh, you know, a, a very interesting topic uh, to talk about. We'll do so in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And I've certainly learned a lot about uh, you know what's going on in the world of Formula One, but also away from the world of Formula One. And that that uh, that the fact is that you are a stock photo model. You know that that was something <laughs> I, <laughs> I did not expect to see. You know, a nice picture of a Mr. Mark Hamilton, complete wearing PPE, gloves, and a mask, installing a uh, what, what was that? Uh, a, uh, what was it? A, 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 a range, range hood. hood. Yeah. A range hood. 
yep. So if you go on Shutterstock <laughs> and you need some stock photographs of a technician uh, delicately installing appliances in a luxury kitchen, you can absolutely do so. Uh, so far, and uh, my catalog has been up for about three months, I have earned $1.57 in royalties. So <laughs> there you not go. the most lucrative experience, but I do tease Parsa, our son's godmother, is uh, is an aspiring model, but I tease her all the time that I too am a professional model, just <laughs> not one that's making any money. But thank you for sharing that on the air. <laughs> that's awesome. Maybe then the, the next time we talk about it, you've earned an additional $1.57. It's going to pay for my Miami tickets, I tell you. <laughs> there you go. A buck 57 at a time. Now talking about... Uh, uh, what we were uh, just uh, hinting at before the break here, but Netflix says they would think about buying out the F1 uh, rights to stream races. And they said they would consider a bid to take over running a Formula One if it was available, just to ensure that it has the control needed to justify broadcasting races live. Now, this is interesting because I have to admit, you know, like like everybody else, you know, I have a subscription to Netflix, which gets a ridiculous amount of use in uh, my family and in, in, in my house. And uh, I'm sure is the case for, for, for most people nowadays. And I have to admit, I like a lot of the, I, I don't watch all their originals, but I find that uh, the, a lot of their program, not just uh, Drive to Survive, is, it's it's absolutely top-notch uh, programming and content, say, from, from series to movies to whatever. But this is completely different to what we're seeing on uh, on Netflix. And I find this one fascinating, but seeing what they've done not just with the drive to survive but just what they've done with their own content in general i can't help but feel that they would do a very good job of it production wise i just um, i'm intrigued by this whole story because it would be a very radical shift from their their current offerings yeah this story is bananas and there's far more here than you would probably extrapolate or mm -hmm. unpack from the title. What they are saying here, and Netflix's CEO Reed Hastings is explicitly saying is that given the opportunity, they would seriously consider a bid not for the TV rights for Formula One. They would buy Formula One in its entirety so they could own the entire the entire package and they would have complete and explicit control over how it was produced how it was packaged and how it is presented so what they're saying is yes this is something we're very much interested in they acknowledge that they weren't in a position to even look at this back in 2016 2017 when liberty took over but that if they could buy formula one as a complete entity <laughs> they would do it because it gives them a specific property that they have full control over the challenge for platforms like amazon and for netflix when it comes to things like professional sporting leagues like the nfl and the premier league and major league baseball and things like that is ultimately you're only ever going to be able to get a slice of the action and you're really constrained by the way that those sports are conducted because if you look at the nfl if you look at nba major league baseball those teams are all owned individually the unique thing about formula one is you can buy Formula One. The, the teams are, they're a part of Formula One, but they kind of sign up. Whereas in Major League Baseball and the NFL and these different kind of sports leagues, 
The teams are the league. There is nothing but the teams. You can't buy the NBA. You can't buy the NHL. You could buy an individual team. But in Formula One, there is this entity, which is Formula One, and they strike deals with teams to come and race within their championship. So Mm -hmm. for Liberty, they could buy this, and then they can do whatever they want with it. The question is, if they did it, what would that look like? Do you sever ties with all of your existing broadcast partners, and you make this an exclusive Netflix product? And I think that's where the value for them would be, right? Which is, hey, if you want to watch Formula One, there's one way to do it, and it's on Netflix. And we're going to give you all this supplementary content. We're going to give you all these additional feeds. We're going to give you all this additional data. It's going to be the F1 TV Pro app on steroids. We're going to load up 20 years of races into Netflix. It's an app you already use. It's available on every device in the world. That would be exciting. And maybe they do that, but maybe they then package up the same feeds and sell them onto their existing broadcast partners because there's some expectations in some parts of the world that it's still going to be available that way. So for me, this is exciting. But this is the other interesting part. This is now the second time in, what, a week, two weeks, you and I have been talking about a possible sale of Formula One. The first conversation was a week or two ago when it was reported that there was a Saudi group looking at buying Liberty, and now we've got the CEO of Netflix openly speaking about a possible purchase. This, Where there's smoke, there's fire, and I think you and I were right that Liberty may not be looking to sell because there's still so much more value they could extract from this, but they only outlay $300 million of their own capital anyways. If somebody comes along and says, hey, we'll give you $8 billion for this product, you probably kind of wipe your hands clean of it and hand over the keys and walk away with $4 billion in net profit before tax. So this is exciting. This is very, very cool. And I think it's one of the only sporting properties in the world that a streaming platform could really do this with just because they would have complete and total control over this. It's one race every two weeks on average. You could do this. So very exciting. Yeah, you know, really is fascinating compared to, say, like the NFL, because the NFL is now, what, on CBS, Fox, ESPN, and is it uh, NBC? And I mean, and they all package it and present it a, a little bit different. I know if I'm hearing Tony Romo, I'm watching a CBS feed. If I hear uh, Joe Buck and uh, Troy Aikman, it's Fox. You know, if it's uh, Al Michaels and Chris Collingsworth, it's uh, it's going to be, uh, you know, the, the, the Sunday night game on NBC. And they're all a little bit different, and they're all kind of, like, uh, unique. I always find, like, CBS, like, their graphics and stuff is a little bit bland compared to some of the other ones, but hey, maybe that's uh, just me. But I mean, you know, Netflix taking this thing over and then just running their own thing with it would, um, I mean, it would be unique and it would be radical and it's, uh, you know, completely something that hasn't happened before, right? And that and that's where it is really, really fascinating because as much as I think that um, that Liberty has done a pretty good job since they took over five, six years ago, whatever it is now, I mean, there's still a ton of uh, growth. And, you know, I, I've complained about it to almost everybody I know and people that don't even follow Formula One themselves that, that in 2021, you know, there still isn't a native Apple TV app, which, you know, I think is, you know, really surprising where Whereas, you know, I can pick up my iPhone. There's a Netflix app. I can go onto my uh, my laptop, which is a, a Windows system. I can get download a Windows, uh, or sorry, a Netflix app. I can go to my my PVR, my DVR, which is uh, powered by Telus here in uh, in Western Canada. There's a Netflix app on there, native in the system. So I mean, it is literally anywhere, everywhere that you can think of, and uh, it, it you know, relatively speaking, a, a subscription monthly to Netflix is is not 
not a deal breaker. I mean, over the course of a year, it probably costs more for a next a Netflix subs or subscription compared to say an F1 TV Pro app. But on the flip side, uh, you know, you're getting so much more content from Netflix, and I think from there they're kind of thinking if we can package this thing all together, that you know, if we got like F1 T, you know, F1 on here, and we're getting all our F1 uh, fans in there, we can perpetuate this drive to survive thing. But there's all their favorite series, all their favorite movies, all the different things, all the the sell-ons that they can make. I mean, this is surprising, but like you were saying too, I mean, it, it is you know the second story in as many weeks that you and I are talking about it. And whereas I might have brushed this off a week or 10 days ago as, you know, this is maybe just kind of like, you know, nothing to it. You know, that old saying where there's smoke, there's fire. I'm kind of wondering now where, you know, what's going on, you know, beneath the surface, behind the scenes that, that you know, that, that we're just not privy to. And I, I'm I'm really quite curious as to see where this th- this goes. I mean it's 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 definitely a story to watch. The other reason I'm invested in this, and I know we've got a couple of other great stories to go through, is I don't actually think that the actual broadcast experience of a Formula One race today is a whole lot different than it was pre-Liberty. They they haven't had the opportunity yet to get super innovative. It's okay. It's not great. Mm-hmm. And I also... I, I I've typically really enjoyed the Sky personalities. Now it feels like there's a lot of Sky personalities and I don't necessarily have a relationship with them because they seem to rotate through so many people so often. So I'm open to trying something new from a broadcast perspective. And maybe it's not Fox Sports NHL hockey in the mid 90s when you had the The Fox puck. puck. (laughs) The Fox puck, Fox track puck, I think it was called or whatever it was, and the robots. (laughs) But I'm, I'm open to trying something new because I don't think the current broadcast experience is as good as it should be. I also don't think that for the long-term growth and the long-term sustainability of Formula One in the US, that they're going to want to have to lean into Sky Sports to provide their feed and their in-race commentary. Ultimately, they're going to have to stand up a US booth or get some US folks involved with the broadcast because I think it's okay now, but I think for the health of the sport, in the U.S. in the long run, they're going to need to integrate some more American voices and personality to, to I don't want to say domesticate it because that sounds terrible, but to make it more comfortable and familiar for the viewers. And these could be folks that have been in motorsports for a while or are familiar with it, but I think there's some value in creating a product that's a little bit more um, comfortable for your non-traditional F1 F1 viewers. They continue yeah. to grow that base. You know, th- this is not you know, what what I'm about to say is not a knock against TSN or any of the um, the on-air n- n- talent of it. But one of the complaints I've had about their soccer coverage, especially with MLS, and that was an area that I was involved in for a good number of years, was the fact that a lot of their on-air, like their commentary, their their comment, their commentators, and also their panels and stuff like that, for a long time, it, it's changed a little bit now. We're almost exclusively these British, you know, broadcasters or former players and stuff like that. And it almost, uh, to, to me, almost became like a, I don't want to go as far as a meme, but it just seemed like, how how can we have to go with this uh, stereotype? Are there not enough uh, experienced broadcasters or former players that are Canadian or American that, that you know, uh, you know, a Canadian or American audience can relate to that are watching on TSN? Because, you know, I, I, I don't know... <laughs> 
you know, and I mean, like I say, it's changed now, but I don't necessarily need to hear that, you know, that sort of accent when it comes to, you know, tuning into something like that. And just from, you know, this is my own personal take. I just find it a little bit more relatable when, you know, when I hear somebody that's, you know, that that can kind of explain it to me or or talk to me in my own kind of, um, you know, cultural terms, I guess, you know, it's it's to put it, if you kind of understand what I'm driving at. Yeah, and I, I honestly think our listeners can probably appreciate that because I think that's so much of the feedback that we get and why our American base is so big. And Americans represent the vast majority of our listeners followed by Canadians. But I think it's because we're more accessible to them. And I think sometimes mm-hmm. listening to a British podcast can be a little bit a little bit jarring at times. The humor is a little bit different. The humor is a little bit dry. The language is different. The verbiage is different. I don't think it's accessible. And I think we've made a very significant effort to connect with our base, knowing Mm -hmm. what they like and knowing what they enjoy and try to speak to that audience. And I totally get you on that soccer thing, man. Like I would get so frustrated where these local MLS clubs, and it happens in the US as well, they're, they're trying to build a community of followers in their market, but they go and hire Scott Scottish and Welsh and English commentators who have no connection to those communities. And I would get so frustrated with the Canadian clubs because you've got somebody like Kaylin Kyle, who is this exceptional talent with the Canadian women's national team. Yep. And she's doing broadcasting for us clubs. And it's just like, why could she not be partnered up in a part of the MLS community in this country? Like mm-hmm. it's, it's frustrating. So I hear you loud and clear, hear you yeah. loud and clear. Yeah, yeah totally. And hopefully that uh, that 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 changes. But I, I mean, I, I think that there is, you know, a, a sore under or like a, a really big under representation of uh, North American voices that is sorely needed in Formula One. I think that 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 will come in time. I I, I think that uh, the the whole broadcast thing needs to be, I don't want to say necessarily modernized, but I think it needs to be shaken up and just changed ESPN, and, and made <laughs> made more relevant. And I, I guess relatable will be sure. the what I'm trying to get at. Anyways, let's take another break here, Mark. We still have uh, a ton of things to talk about. Why don't we just throw an extra segment in here and go a little bit longer tonight uh, because we've got some driver news to talk about. We still got to talk about the Dan Grand Prix and we haven't even done that yet. Anyways, we'll do so or we'll start to do so in a moment. So don't go away. We will be right back after a quick break. Okay, welcome back to the show. And we do have some uh, driver's news. First of all, Sebastian Vettel says there was never really any doubt that he would extend his deal with Aston Martin into 2022. Seb is apparently really excited uh, to uh, drive the new cars. And uh, well, I mean, honestly, what option did they really have? You know, like uh, end that deal with Sebastian or not uh, give him the opportunity to extend uh, that option, which I believe he had uh, was, uh, you know, he could uh, initiate that option in his contract himself. I mean, Sebastian, I, I, you know, let, let's just face it. I mean, regardless if, um, you know, you're competitive or not, what these guys do, I think they all love to drive. <laughs> Whether or not they're competitive is another thing. I think they're all there to race. And I think if you have the opportunity to contribute to a team and, you know, try out these new cars, I would think that that would be, um, you know, uh, I wouldn't say a no brainer, but I think it would make the decision a little bit uh, easier. And I think if you're Sebastian, I think maybe that this year for a lot of people might be. 
I don't want to say a throwaway year, but maybe like you were talking about earlier in the show that uh, when you're referencing uh, Red Bull, that this is maybe a bit of a bonus year, a bit of an unexpected year to maybe sneak a championship. Maybe it's kind of a similar thing for for a lot of people because, you know, under normal circumstances, we'd already be in those uh, new cars. So not big uh, surprise for me that Sebastian was uh, was uh, or is coming back uh, for next year. I mean, if he went, who would they really partner up with with Lance Stroll? I I mean, Lawrence has said all along this is going to be a championship caliber team. And if you were to, you know, I mean, unless one of the top names was uh, available, who would you put back into the car? Nico Hulkenberg? I don't want to take away from Nico, but not really maybe the caliber driver that you're looking for. Although maybe at this point in his career that, uh, you know, Sebastian isn't necessarily a huge, you know, step up on a lot of guys. But I, I just don't know who you would uh, replace him with if he were to go. Yeah, completely agree. I'll make this super, super quick. One, yep. if you're a Lawrence Stroll, you're not investing hundreds of millions of dollars in this team to sign Nico Hulkenberg. Exactly. You want a world championship to, to front this organization. Two, I think it was always going to be a no-brainer because I don't think that Sebastian Vettel was going to leave a $17 million option on the table <laughs> next year when the fortunes of this team could be very, very different. And then True. three, finally, it also gives... Seb at least one more year to be close to Mick as his career progresses. And then I guess there's a fourth option too, or a fourth point as well, which is the Twitter love affair with Sebastian Vettel continues <laughs> for another campaign, which is so unique because everything, ever since things soured between him and Ferrari, the entire internet has fallen in love with Sebastian Vettel. They sure weren't there when he was running off four championships in a row with Red Bull back in the early 2010s, but they're certainly know, there right? now. Next story. So, okay, now that Valtteri Bottas is leaving Mercedes is going to get a multi-year deal, we don't have really anybody to rip on having a one-year rolling kind of contract. So Valtteri Bottas is no longer that guy. He's no longer Valtteri Bottas. So the new Bottas is uh, Sergio Perez. Oh, good, good comparison. Good <laughs> yeah, comp. Who is, uh, it said he's under no added pressure to perform at Red Bull because he just got a single-year contract extension with the Formula One team. And man, I don't know how you can say that when you're at a team like Red Bull. I mean, uh, I could understand maybe if that's at Toro Rosso and you're not there expected to win races and get podiums and help, uh, you know, cobble together points and results to win a constructors championship. So I don't necessarily agree with the Sergio's own take. I think there's got to be a lot of pressure on him. Oh man, I totally agree. And I don't want to get too belligerent on this, but this is a 31, 32-year-old driver. He's in the backside of his career. Sure. He is driving arguably the best car in the championship with arguably the most powerful power unit. He has scored two podiums in 14 Grand Prix this year. And as I said earlier, there have certainly been some circumstances that have mitigated what may have been some slightly better finishes than other Grand Prix. He does have eight top five finishes, but as it stands right now, he's fifth in the championship. And if not for his relatively soft performance year to date, Red Bull should also be leading the Constructors' Championship. Mm -hmm. The reality for Sergio is this, that Max wins the Drivers' Championship, but they don't win the Driver or the Constructors' Championship. That is entirely on him. He needs to own that, and he needs to sleep with that every single night. So he may not be feeling the pressure, but I also know that Red Bull team, and if he has a really bad run of races to finish this campaign, <laughs> I don't know that it's a guarantee that he's going to come back. We've seen this consistently in Formula One. It's not like 
the NBA and Major League Baseball and the NFL where there's a collective bargaining agreement and those contracts are set in stone and you get to keep nope. your money even if you get cut. The the Formula One world is ruthless. These contracts can be torn up in a heartbeat. It's happened to Sergio Perez. This is a guy that had a three-year deal with Force India and it was torn up mid-contract so they could bring in Sebastian Vettel. And I'm not saying that's going to happen, but he should absolutely be feeling pressure. And he should be feeling pressure because his point Four performances year to date are costing this team a chance at the Constructors' Championship. So if he's not feeling pressure, he damn well should be. You know, if I'm Christian Horner, I'm uh, Helmut Marco. I'm probably like, wait, what? <laughs> if I'm reading that and, you know, I, I might be saying something to Sergio the next time they're standing at the water cooler. It's like... Yeah, bro, you might want to just uh, walk those comments back a little bit or maybe not say that again in public and maybe just go home and kind of think about this over the weekend because this is not really the headspace that you need to be in if you're going to be driving and racing our cars because, uh, yeah, we have expectations for you, so you should have those expectations uh, for yourself. Okay, next story. So this one is, uh, I'd say, like not really a surprise at all, but that is the fact that uh, Haas, you remember them, that uh, the, the team that we never talk about, except for maybe the wrong reasons, but uh, they've confirmed that Mick Schumacher and Nikita Mazepin will be back for 2022. I think that's not surprising for a couple of reasons. Number one, that uh, Mazepin probably, well, we know he's bringing a ton of money, which is uh, you know funding a good portion of that team and their operation. And Mick Schumacher is Mick Schumacher that uh, obviously he needs a ton more seasoning in Formula One to prove, yeah, you know, he's got potential to be a good Formula One driver, but is still obviously very young. So I don't think that uh, that's really, uh, you know, too much of a surprise. But the one news or bit of news that came out this week regarding uh, uh, drivers that really kind of uh, made me sit up is Ferrari team principal Mattia Bonato, who said that they are struggling to find F1 opportunities for their driver academy members. And uh, this is a bit of a shock. I mean, uh, obviously, their team is, um, you know, they're, they're committed to both uh, Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz, and um, they have, um, you know, their, I, I guess, satellite or teams within their satellite or sphere of influence, like Haas, like Alfa Romeo, but Alfa, I don't want to say that they've kind of gone rogue. <laughs> That's kind of going a little bit uh, too far, but they certainly seem to be kind of standing up and being a little bit more assertive as to what the, they're doing, just to, you know, regardless to the fact uh, that they have, Merce- or sorry, uh, I was going to say Mercedes power units, that rumor's been out there, but for, uh, Ferrari power units, I mean, they've gone on, they've assigned Valtteri Bottas, they still haven't decided whether or not they're going to keep uh, Antonio Giovinazzi in the car for next year, but I kind of get a feeling that they're kind of going their own way, they, they seem to be less pushed about by now that Kimi Raikkonen is gone or leaving at the end of the year I, I feel like Alpha's kind of doing their own thing and I can see why Bonato would be a little bit concerned because now you almost have a bit of a almost a similar situation with Red Bull like this this funnel of uh, drivers coming up uh, through a system and then nowhere necessarily to park them uh, you know pun intended in Formula One so that uh, talent uh, can blossom or even uh, Mercedes where you look uh, what's happened with uh, with uh, with Williams and the fact that we were expecting Nick DeFries to go there and you know he's not going to be an F1 at all next year 
Yeah, you're right. Especially in the case of Mercedes, that's a team that has been struggling for very much the same reason as Ferrari, actually, in the sense that I think they expected, and I don't know that these were necessarily contractually, I would say guaranteed expectations, but maybe handshake agreements that, hey, if I'm going to feed you a power unit, I would expect that you provide a seat for one of our drivers. And I'm specifically speaking to Williams because I think Mercedes had every expectation that Nick DeVries was going to get a ride in the Williams whip next year. That obviously isn't going to happen because they elected, they opted to pursue Alex Albon because they wanted a driver that has some Formula One experience and they got to show a a flash of independence. You're absolutely right in the sense that Alfa Romeo had had an agreement with Ferrari that they would take Antonio Giovinazzi, but Giovinazzi is out of contract at the end of this year, and there's little to no guarantee that they're going to replace him with another young Ferrari driver. So the benefit, of course, for Red Bull is they own two teams and they have four guaranteed seats. Ferrari has one seat with with Haas in Mick Schumacher. They had a second seat with Alfa Romeo, but it looks like they're going to lose that. So very much like Mercedes, they're running out of places to stash their young drivers. You have to start thinking, especially if these teams start to de-emphasize their involvement in Formula E, that some of them might start looking more and more towards Indy as a place to put some of these young drivers who maybe wouldn't have otherwise had an opportunity in open wheel racing. But yeah, interesting story. Absolutely. Yeah, that that was a bit of a surprise. I mean, when, when you see like, especially the big teams like Mercedes and Ferrari, you know, saying that they're struggling to find opportunities for, for their, you know, junior drivers, it really kind of <laughs> makes you sit up and think. Anyway, so let's uh, move along now. Uh, Honda has revealed that they fast tracked their uh, unit or sorry, power unit upgrades that they introduced at, at Spa, which is uh, really kind of uh, interesting. And it kind of reinforces what they were saying that when, you know, at the end of last year, that they were going all in for 21 to help Red Bull win a win a championship and I guess that kind of builds uh, nicely on the factor that that what we were just uh, talking about uh, Sergio Perez and not feeling under pressure but I mean there are a lot of uh, expectations you know not just uh, with with the team but also with Honda to to really try and stack the odds in their favor to win one or both of those uh, championships. And I'm not really surprised that they, they, they did that, but uh, you, uh, Sorry, Yasuaki Asaki, pardon me, that's a terrible pronunciation on my part, who is Honda's head of power unit development, had to say, quote, the new energy store has been developed in a project that has taken several years with the aim to combine improvement in energy efficiency with significant reductions in weight. In what will be the company's final season in the sport, Honda F1 has managed to introduce the new ES fitted with a lighter, low-resistant, highly efficient, and ultra-high-power battery cell just in time for the start of the second half of the season. In order to achieve the ultimate goal of defeating Mercedes and winning the championship before leaving F1 at the end of the 2021 season, we recognize the need to enhance performance. As such, the development plan for the new energy store was brought forward substantially from the original goal of 2022 to introduction during the 2021 season. End quote. And I find that um, you know a very, very interesting admission by Honda. And obviously, this is something that's been in development uh, for a significant uh, period of time. But what I find really fascinating is Honda's commitment to see this thing through the end um, and, and commit as much as they have have, not just financially, but uh, just in, in human capital as well to to build on and develop these these power units. I mean, let's face it, they made that announcement quite a while ago. And, you know, we were all 
taken by surprise by it. I mean, we we understand the logic now why they are leaving Formula One, but I mean, it was still a bombshell at the time, you know, regardless that uh, Red Bull has subsequently taken over that IP. But like I say, the amount of money, capital, and, and human resources that they've continued to invest into this project is really quite staggering. It's, it's really and quite shocking to me. We continue to learn about investments and contributions that they're going to make towards the project beyond this year. So it obviously mm-hmm. won't be a Honda branded power unit next year, but they're doing everything they can to make sure that the transition to Red Bull is yep. a successful one. The key benefit here for this new energy store is the weight. So weight is absolutely the the worst possible thing that you can add to a Formula One car. So the fact that there's some reduced weight here is a good thing. Reducing curb weight on a, a Formula One car is great because there's performance gains in doing that alone, even if the upgrade doesn't add incremental horsepower or performance in any meaningful way. The other thought here too, just to add as well, is we've got lots of questions so far this year about, hey, why are teams still upgrading their power units? I thought there was a freeze. Well, no, the teams are effectively allowed to upgrade each individual component of the power unit. So that would be your hybrid components. That would be your power store. That would be your internal combustion engine, your turbo, your wastegate, your exhaust. They're allowed to perform one upgrade for each one of those components this year. That power unit, as it sits at the end of the season, is going to be frozen for the next three years. So 2022, 2023, 2024. And then in either 2025 or 2026, we're going to have that whole new power unit. But that was something that Honda and Red Bull, especially were adamant was going to happen, that we were going to freeze the power units after this year because they needed time to be able to integrate the infrastructure so that they could start continuing to support the existing power unit, but start building towards the next generation of power unit, whatever that's ultimately going to look like. But I also didn't realize that Honda hadn't upgraded this component. So to me, it came as something of a, of a surprise, yep. but also kind of leads into a story that we'll speak to in a couple of moments. Yeah, well, that's uh, the, the news that Ferrari is finally going to debut their updated um, engine and bring their... These are upgrades that they've been talking about for some time. And uh, Mattia Bonato said... They would not introduce these updated power units until after the Italian Grand Prix, which, you know, obviously was a couple of uh, weekends ago. They're going to do so this weekend at the Russian Grand Prix. Charles Leclerc is going to be the first of the two drivers to to get the upgrade. He's going to have to, you know, he's going to have to take one for the team, so to speak. He's going to, you know, uh, incur a grid penalty. And um, this is uh, something that they're also going to do, uh, introduce to Carlos Sainz. They're going to stagger the approach. And it's quite interesting because, I mean, if you look at the Constructors' Championship, you see how close the gap is between Ferrari and McLaren for that third spot in the Constructors' uh, Championship. I mean, Ferrari is is obviously taking, you know, it's it's a... I wouldn't say a gamble to try and win that or win third place, but to finish third in the constructors. But it is in a way because it's it's also what they're saying, uh, what what they're saying, gaining experience for the 2022 car, which which absolutely makes sense. So to me, it it seems that they're willing to maybe suffer a little bit, maybe damage their opportunities to maybe take that third place in the constructors from McLaren with the, I, I guess, maybe look at it as an investment in the development of that power unit going forward into next year. Because uh, Charles Leclerc has been quite uh, forthcoming. He's, uh, you know, been quite, uh, I think, realistic. He's he's not really expecting big changes from the like the, the, the power unit uh, upgrade. Uh, Charles had to say, uh, quote, uh, obviously, whenever we have something that is a little bit better, we try 
try to bring it on track. We expect it to, to be a little bit better. We don't expect any big, big changes, but something that goes in the right direction, end quote. So again, that kind of plays into the larger narrative that we've seen from Ferrari over the I guess the, the the longer term that, you know, they're not really expecting or targeting a, a return to, say, championship form until 22, maybe 23. So it sounds like it's it's part of this measured approach and this development trajectory that uh, they're on. But um, it'll still be interesting to see what Charles is able to do over the next couple of days in Russia. Absolutely. This was an upgrade I expected earlier than now. It was teased. Mm -hmm. It was rumored before during the summer break. And it was one of the things that gave me great optimism for this team in the back half of the season. One of the reasons that I thought they might be able to hang on and surprise the Formula One world and take third place in the Constructors Championship, which would be worth tens of millions of dollars in prize money. Ultimately, they brought it a little bit later than expected. I think ultimately this is less about this year. And we talked in the offseason about the fact that Furry were very much being, they were certainly downplaying their own internal expectations for this year and really playing up the fact that they were expecting 2022 or 2023 to be a year when they'd be much more competitive. So maybe this year genuinely, authentically, sincerely is a surprise and they weren't expecting to have this type of pace. But ultimately, the fact that they're introducing these upgrades now rather than towards the end of the season, so they're ready for next year, isn't about this season. It's really about stress testing this components in season this year so they have a better understanding of how they perform next year and they can make the tweaks and reliability changes in the offseason to prepare the power unit for 2022. At the end of the day, 10, 15 horsepower, as it's speculated, this is going to deliver maybe a tenth of a second, a hundredth of a second. It might make a little bit of a difference in qualifying. We'll we'll have to wait and see how this translates in the world of a Grand Prix and what type of race pace this creates. But Interesting story, but I think it just speaks to the greater picture, which is a lot of teams are trying to lock in their power units and finalize their power unit upgrades now so they can get some reps before the offseason when the power units get frozen. Yeah, certainly very interesting. Uh, and again, Ferrari one to watch and um, interesting to see if they're maybe finally, like I say, willing to sacrifice their 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 shot at a third place in the Constructors' uh, Championship uh, before the season is up. Anyways, if you've been hanging in all this time to hear our preview and our thoughts on well, the race this weekend... we're sorry for starters. <laughs> we're sorry, and then also we have to thank you for, for hanging in so long. Anyways, as, um, as uh, discussed, it is the Russian Grand Prix at the Sochi Autodrome uh, this weekend. Free practice uh, goes in a couple of hours here on the West Coast on Friday morning at about 1.30 a.m., so this will be the 10th Russian Grand Prix. We saw it first held in 1913 and 1914, and then not for 100 years. So those first couple of races, get the nobody will remember. Yeah, that and communism certainly <laughs> did not help Russia's uh, chances to host a Grand Prix, although it didn't seem to hamper Hungary for some strange reason. Anyways, uh, so this will be the, um, well, again, since uh, it was rebooted in 2014, this has been an all-Mercedes affair. If you are not Lewis Hamilton, or Valtteri Bottas, you have never won a race here on the 3.63. Or Nico. Or I Nico guess not. I guess Nico is not on the grid. Nico is not on the grid. Yeah, a current driver. That That is correct. I mean, Lewis won it uh, first. He won it 2014-15. Uh, Nico won it in 16. Completely glossed over that. So thanks for catching that. Bottas has won it twice. He's run very well.
well here over the years. Uh, but again, um, as uh, we, we were talking about at the top of the show, that uh, Valtteri is more than willing to put his own ambitions aside to help uh, Lewis uh, bolster, or, you know, try and bolster Lewis's uh, challenge on the, the championship uh, this season. So if he's ahead on the track and uh, between himself or Lewis finds himself between Valtteri and Max Verstappen, you know, expect that team order uh, to come. But uh, like I said, Valtteri has won in 17 and also he won last year. And uh, again, the the stats on the track, it's uh, 3.63 uh, miles, just under 5.85 kilometers. Total race distance of 192.47 miles or 309.75 miles. There are 53 laps. And um, the weather is a possibility of rain about 65 Fahrenheit or 18 degrees uh, Celsius. And Mark, I don't know. I, I really can't bet against uh, Mercedes just based on their history there since uh, 2014. But I know that um, Mercedes, sorry, Red Bull has kind of been downplaying what they expect uh, to do at uh, at Sochi this weekend. And I, I don't know if this is sort of intentional deflection or, uh, you know, misinformation that uh, Red Bull is uh, kind of uh, putting out there to maybe put people off uh, uh, to a certain extent. But certainly, like I say, just based on Mercedes' record alone since 2014, they're, they're hard to bet against this weekend, right? Yeah, my strategy for Red Bull, if I'm Christian Horner this weekend, is... I look at the situation, which is we're in a tight championship. We have a bunch of Grand Prix coming up on tracks that we should be very well suited for. We have not performed well at Sochi and Mercedes has dominated here. I look at my driver, Max Verstappen. He has a three-place grid penalty. I am going to change his power unit. He is going to take a massive grid penalty and start from the back. You know this race isn't going to be great anyways. Take the penalty now. Get him set up for the rest of the campaign. Mm -hmm. I have every reason to be optimistic for Mercedes at this Grand Prix, less so for Red Bull. So if you're already going to be penalized, take the bigger penalty, swap out that power unit, get a fresh power unit for the next Grand Prix, put this weekend behind you and move on. Now, if if I'm Mercedes, I look at it very much the same way in the sense that it's a tight championship, both in terms of the constructors, which is far from locked up, and also the driver's championship. We absolutely have to win this race and score two or three podium finishes. Now, that's going to be a challenge because... They haven't won a race in two months in 10 Grand Prix. They haven't won a race since Silverstone. It's proving increasingly elusive for them to do so. But Mercedes absolutely has to have a monster showing here because if you look at Max's historical record and performance at the balance of the tracks remaining, he's performed very well at almost all of them, really with the exception of Turkey because he's only had one experience with that track. Mm -hmm. But ultimately... They need to dominate this weekend. They need to cash in in a meaningful way. Now, this is a track that gets a ton, a ton of criticism publicly. And quite frankly, I find that a lot of it's deserved. It's You talked earlier about the fact that that uh, the French Grand Prix isn't easy on the eyes. You know what? When you've got the helicopter shot here and you've got the ocean and the mountains, sure, it looks great. But to me, it's a cheapened street track. It's a bunch of pavement with concrete barricades and metal fencing on the side. It doesn't look great. It doesn't play well. Now, that said, there is one feature of the track which I really do like. When the cars start on the starting grid, there's about 100 meters of distance and then there's a very gradual turn. Now, it's flat out. They then take 
take another 600 meter turn to a very sharp corner at corner two. They go from 330 kilometers to 130 kilometers to take turn two, turn three in two seconds. It's remarkable. But aside from that, I don't particularly love this track. And quite frankly, that doesn't really matter because after next year, we may never see it again. As you and I reported earlier this year, we are going to see the Russian Grand Prix of 2023 move to Agora Drive, about 50 kilometers north, northeast, northwest of St. Petersburg, about 100, 150 kilometers from the Finnish border, which is going to be a purpose-built circuit. Well, it is a purpose-built circuit because there's already constructed, although they're extending it by about a kilometer to accommodate Formula One. This may be one of the last two times that we see a race in Sochi. Now, it's speculated that they may alternate between the venues, but I think if you're a Formula One fan and you've watched the Grand Prix that have been hosted here since 2014, you're probably open to the idea of checking out Agora Drive on a more permanent basis. Yeah, exactly. I mean, th- this isn't my my favorite track for basically all those uh, reasons that uh, you just mentioned. But you know the the thing is we're there now, and um, I under you know normal circumstances, and it's yet to be confirmed what Red Bull and Max Verstappen are going to do this weekend. I was just taking a quick look uh, just to make sure there hasn't been any breaking news, which we always knows we always know breaks after we finish the podcast. So based on what we know right now, that um, that that nobody's changing anything nobody's taking any grid penalties i wouldn't be surprised on sunday after the the checkered flag is waved that it's going to be lewis hamilton valtteri bottas and max verstappen on uh, on the podium having said that a lot of things uh, could change uh, between uh, now and then so certainly we're gonna to have to keep our eyes on that and one thing i did forget to mention lap record is held by lewis hamilton so again this is like mercedes dominated uh, territory he set the lap record back in 19 his lap record is 135.761 and the tire compounds that uh, Pirelli are bringing this week are the C3, the C4, and the C5. So the softest tires in their in their range. So that uh, should be uh, interesting to watch. I mean, it, it's not really, I, I think, a track that's overly hard on tires. So we'll see what uh, what is the the, the favored uh, compound here. I can't really remember from from year to year but uh yeah typically yeah. i think typically especially for the podium finishers the combo is typically you start on the medium you do the one stop and you switch to the hards the track isn't put particularly abrasive Mm -hmm. but it looks like historically it's been that combo of medium to hard to conclude the race yeah i mean if i look at uh, pirelli's own rating here for abrasion on the uh, the asphalt is a three so you know they're rating that out of five so pretty much mid-range here so and uh, for tire stress they're rating it a two out of five so kind of on the the mid to lower end of the, the 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 scale so i mean mediums and hards that certainly would make a a lot of sense. It'll be interesting to see what happens in qualifying and, and who's trying to set their fastest times in Q2 on which uh, compound uh, tire. So that'll uh, certainly uh, be one to uh, to check out. Anyways, uh, I think that's pretty much uh, all we got uh, for, for this week. And I say that, you know, an hour and three quarters into the <laughs> after we started. So it's not like this had the feel of like a, a really quick and, uh, you, know, you know, like in and out kind of show tonight. If you are still listening, 
and this is my normal end of podcast plea, we would really love and appreciate if you can go to your podcast of choice, if you can go to Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcast, wherever you download us, if you can give us a review, if you can give us a score, that would be fantastic. We're not big on self-promotion, but it means the world to us. And for those of you that Mark mentioned off the top that did give us a review last week, thank you, thank you very much. And to his point, if you've been listening to us... If you've been listening to us now for two hours, you probably do like the show. That, for some reason, reminds me of Married with Children. Like, Al just made a really inappropriate comment. Yeah, we should probably just uh, you know, turn okay, that we're one done. off. <laughs> we're done. But yes, thank you, uh, one and all, for uh, for downloading, listening to the show, and uh, for the for the uh, for the reviews as well. It certainly helps uh, make the show visible and grow. And we appreciate uh, the support from from you all. And uh, as Mark said, you know that's a great place uh, to leave it. You know, thank you for, for again for for checking in with us. It's uh, going to be a, a fun weekend. And if you want to get in touch, best way to do so is on Twitter. Join us every Thursday night before the, uh, the the podcast when we sit down and record, roughly at about 7 p.m. Pacific or 10 p.m. Eastern for our Spaces chat. You can also uh, get in touch via email at scooterf1pod at gmail.com. Oh, Twitter, by the way, is also easy to find at scooterf1pod. That's it. That's a wrap. Enjoy the race this weekend, and we'll be back on Sunday night to wrap it up and give you our thoughts on the race. So enjoy it, and we'll talk to you guys again very, very soon. Bye for now.